Today on Truth of Politics and Culture, I will interview South Carolina Republican Party Chairman and National RNC Co-Chairman Drew McKissick. I will recap this weekend's budget battle in Congress and preview what is likely to happen this week in Congress, as well as what is likely to happen in President Trump's New York fraud trial. I'll also talk about a longitudinal study that shows traditional two-parent homes are best for raising children. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. I hope that uh, this Monday morning finds you rested and ready to take on the week. I hope you had a great weekend, enjoyed some time maybe with family, or uh, just got out into some beautiful weather. I'm telling you, we had an incredible weekend weather-wise, and I hope you were able to take advantage of that. If you're live on Facebook watching me this morning, thank you very much. You're already cranking it up for your week. And, of course, uh, don't forget about the podcast. Uh, a lot of you are cor- uh, currently listening, uh, well, will be, you're not currently listening, you're currently watching live, but you'll be uh, listening, hopefully, to the podcast later, and you can find the podcast at Spotify or Apple Podcast, and just about anywhere else you can find a podcast. So if you follow me, thank you, and if you would, leave me a good review, and that could bring some other people um, to the table. All right. Uh, let's dive into the news because we've got plenty to talk about today. and We've got a great interview coming up at 8 o'clock this morning with South Carolina Republican Party chair and national co-chairman for the Republican Party, Drew McKissick. He'll be talking about all the stuff that we're going to talk about now. He'll just give us um, a lot of good commentary and maybe any updates that might be available. Uh, well, i tell you what, before I got in, I get into the, to the House and what happened over the weekend and do we actually have a... Um, a continuing resolution and all those things. I'm sure you've already seen most of that on the news, but there's some breaking news this morning, something that took place literally overnight. California Governor Gavin Newsom will reportedly appoint LaFonza Butler, the president of the far-left Emily's List, to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein in the U.S. Senate after Feinstein passed away last week. Of course, she Feinstein was... 90 years old, maybe 90 plus. I can't remember exactly her age, but uh, she had been in failing health um, and had not only physical health, but her mental capacity was beginning to fail as well. That seems to be something that's happening to uh, more than just one Democrat these days. But uh, Dianne Feinstein had an incredible life in terms of being a leader in the Democrat Party. Um, She had, of course, amazing longevity. Uh, Some say she stayed longer than she should have. Um, Others say that she had had earned the right to go out on her own terms. And so she had suffered from shingles, um, several other things. A fall, I think, was was in there. I mean, it's, it's really sad when people begin to get to such an advanced age and they lose their capacity, they lose their health, but they want to hang on to their leadership role. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think there's anything wrong with hanging on to your leadership role if your age is not a factor. There are people who are 90 years old that are still viable mentally and physically. They're able to not only to function, but to excel. I mean, right now, I think Ed Young is the pastor of Second Baptist Church, Houston. This is just an example that I happen to know personally. Um, I believe he's either 85 or 86 years old. Uh, His wife passed away a few years ago. He just recently remarried at 86, 85, 86, and he still is the pastor of Second Baptist Houston. In other words, he shows up every day and presides over a church with tens of thousands of members and attenders and multiple campuses. And you, you ask the question, well, how can he do this at that age? Because his physical and mental ability are still strong, still viable. And when you can do that, hey, more power to you. I think that's great. But when it becomes obvious that you're losing the ability to fulfill the leadership position that you've been granted by the people, the right thing to do would be to step down. But politics makes that very, very, very difficult. It made it difficult for Dianne Feinstein. It's making it difficult for Joe Biden. It's making it difficult for Senator Fetterman. I mean, there there are people who are being forced or pushed. Now, they may... When I say forced, they're willingly participating, but there's a sense in which the environment that they're in and the politics of the moment put so much pressure on them that they feel like that they have to continue, even though there are those who say that it's time to step down. And so in the passing of Dianne Feinstein, uh, we would also say today that we we, we should pray for her family. I mean, this is someone who was loved by a family. You know, when we look at people today, we tend to make judgments based on which tribe they belong to. And and I've even seen people on both sides of the aisle do this, where they've actually celebrated when someone has died. And then they they justify that by saying, well, this person was evil, even though they don't know the person personally, they don't know anything about um, who they are. I mean, it, it, you know, do I disagree with Diane Feinstein? Did I think her policies were bad for the country? Absolutely, I thought all those things. But wishing her death or celebrating in any way her passing in in terms of uh, and and neglecting to even think about the fact that she was loved by her family and their people that are mourning today, um, I, look, that's just not part of a biblical worldview. And so, yeah, I. I have to say, she served the country. Now, there's big debate on whether that service to the country was good or bad, but there's no doubt that she did serve for all those number of years from California, and that evidently she was loved by many in California because she kept getting reelected. Um, of course, she had decided that she wasn't going to run again, uh, but she, she, her health didn't allow her to get to the end of her last term. But but this is this is really amazing. Newsom was put, Governor Newsom was put kind of in a box here because he promised that he was going to nominate or, or replace Diane Feinstein with a with a black female. Because the when Kamala Harris went from being in the Senate in California, uh, representing California in the US Senate, I should say, to being vice president of the United States, he appointed a Hispanic man. And that just really riled the African-American community in California. 
And so he made a promise. He said, next time seat comes open, of course, he knew that Dianne Feinstein's health issues could become an issue. Uh, But the next time a seat came open, he would appoint an African-American female. Well, you've already got people running for the seat in California, Dianne Feinstein's seat. When she announced that she was not going to run again, then you've got a list of people that came out and said that they wanted to get the job. And that includes Democrat Representative Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee. So all three of those are in the race. Now, if he had appointed one of them, he could have appointed Barbara Lee. But if he did, that would give her a leg up, and it would cause him political problems in the state of California for interfering with or stepping into the, a race that was already established between three candidates. So what does this mean that LaFonza is going to be the person that's going to be in the Senate? Well, it, first of all, it means that he's fulfilling his promise. She is a black female, and she will also be the second lesbian to serve in the Senate. But journalists have been noting, and it's right to take note, that Butler listed her state of residence on her ex-account as Maryland. Quote, FEC filings from Emily's List record LaFonza Butler's residence as Silver Springs, Maryland, as recently as 31 days ago. So a month ago, she was listed as living in Maryland, which is interesting because it's difficult for me to see how someone living in Maryland can represent the state of California in the United States Senate. I mean, I, I get, you know, long-distance relationships, but I'm not sure that this is one that the people of California are going to be feel particularly good about. And, I mean, it would be nice to have one of their own actually be in the Senate to represent them. FEC analyst Rob Pryor said the FP. Uh, the FPPC and the FEC filings indicate that soon-to-be California Senator Alfonso Butler hasn't been a resident of California uh, or for the of the state for over two years. And then there's uh, here at the if you, if you want to go look at this story, by the way, it's at Daily Wire today, and they've got copies of the forms that back all of this up listed in the, in the article. Pyers noted that Emily's List was already cleaning up their website to hide where Butler allegedly lives. The organization removed the following line from their website. She lives in Maryland with her partner, Nikki Lee, and their daughter, Nyla. Emily's List is a political action committee that helps elect pro-abortion activists to political offices across the country. So that's what we know about that right now. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more said about the fact and a lot more looking into it, at least I would think there would be, if, if we have a press. Uh, uh, and now the legacy media, don't count on the legacy media to look into this because they're going to go along likely with anything that Gavin Newsom wants to do because they love Gavin Newsom and they want Gavin Newsom to kind of be the next person in line for the leader of the Democrat Party. Uh, even though there are other people that are lining up for that job as well. But um, you know, I, I, I would think that there would be enough curiosity on some that there would be some investigation into this to see if LaFonza is actually a resident, if, if you can say that with a straight face, that she's a resident of California. All right, Congress passed a 45-day continuing resolution this weekend that's going to fund the government until November 17th. Uh, it didn't contain the spending cuts and the increased border security that Republicans, a lot of Republicans wanted. A lot of the conservative rep- Republicans in Congress also want 12 separate appropriations bills, which, by the way, that's the way the government's supposed to work. 
In case you haven't ever thought about it, or maybe you haven't thought about it in a while, um, the, the, the way that the budget is supposed to go down is, is, is a, a pretty interesting process. I mean, it really begins in February, where usually you have the president submit a budget, uh, then you have the Congress begin to, to debate it, and they work through it over the course of the year. They approve the 12 appropriations bills that will be debated. They bring those to the floor. This takes place through the spring, through the summer, and then coming up before the end of September, by September 30th, supposedly Congress would have passed all of these bills, and then you would have you know, the, the budget set for the year. But that hasn't happened since 1998. There hasn't been a clean budget passed since then because there's been all the delays, there's been uh, some government shutdowns, uh, and all these things happening because of the political, the nature of the political environment in D.C. Um, so this is where we are again. We're, we're not going to go through a normal process. In fact, Speaker McCarthy realizes that he's not going to be able to get 12 separate appropriations bills passed before the end of the year, and certainly not by November 17th. He's gotten some more time, but he can't get 12 through, so he's trying to bundle, um, you know, and, and, get, and get at least four, four separate appropriations bills that would kind of account for the 12 appropriations. They're just bundled together. So he's, he's following the, the bundling craze. Everybody's bundling today, whether it's insurance or uh, vacations or whatever. Uh, and now McCarthy's trying to get that done in the United States House. Last Saturday, McCarthy met with the holders of the four House seats in New York that flipped to Republicans in, 2020, in the 2022 midterms. The, those seats played, as you know, a pretty important role in ensuring the slim majority that Republicans have in the House right now, those four representatives told McCarthy that they would all be in danger of losing their seats if the government was shut down. Uh, the continuing resolution drew final opposition from 90 Republicans in the House and nine in the Senate. And McCarthy's been saying all along that he needed the extra time. He said, I've got, we can get uh, these four big appropriations bills or spending resolutions. We can get them done, but I've got to have time to hammer out the details. And so we'll see if that happens between now and November 17th. Now, it's not going to happen right away because <laughs> McCarthy is going to be facing absolutely the possibility of being ousted as the speaker by his own party. And that's, of course, at the behest of Matt Gates, who McCarthy and Gates have been at, at, at odds with each other ever since it took 15 rounds of voting to get McCarthy in as speaker to start with. Now, Chip Roy went on Fox News this weekend. He was talking to Mark Levin, and this is how he summed up the budget debate and why he is particularly upset about it. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, look, $2 trillion in deficit spending this year on top of $33 trillion of debt. Uh, our interest uh, alone is now e eclipsing our defense spending. We've got to do something about it. And frankly, I just want to be blunt. We're sitting here right now having a debate about how we can reduce basically non-defense discretionary spending. That is all of the bureaucracy in Washington for the most part. That entire spending 
is less than the deficit that we're going to have this year. In other words, we are spending every dollar we take in on so-called mandatory spending. And my Republican colleagues say, that's how we'll fix it, Chip. Don't worry. We'll have a commission, and we will figure out how to fix the spending on Medicare and Social Security. But if you can't cut the funding to a Department of Justice that targets Scott Smith in Loudoun County or Mark Houck in Philadelphia or the former president with these ridiculous charges, if you can't cut that, if you can't cut spending where it's being wasted at a Department of Homeland Security and not securing the border, if you can't cut the Department of Education that's interfering with the educating of your kids, then how in the hell are you going to touch Social Security and Medicare? Okay, that's uh, Chip Roy being pretty blunt about his feelings about what's going on in the House and why it's so important for Republicans to, to uh, stick together and try to get what they can in the budget process. They want to increase border security. They want to cut the budget back to pre-COVID spending. And you can see that would be about 30%. And you can see why this is important. When you're talking about all of the major spending in Congress lumped together is less than the current deficit, I mean, th this is insanity. I mean, it's pure insanity. You cannot continue to run the government in, in that way you're going to run us over the fiscal cliff. And, you know, we're talking about, we talk about all the time about our grandkids. What about our kids and our grandkids? Well, it's not going to be our kids and our grandkids alone. They're going to have to bear this burden. If this burden keeps growing at the current rate, we're already at a $33 trillion debt in this country. If we keep growing at the current rate, it's going to be us. It's going to be us and our children and our grandkids that are going to have to shoulder this because we're headed toward a fiscal disaster, and Republicans are trying to avert that. We're also headed toward an immigration disaster because we have illegal immigrants pouring over the border, and the sanctuary cities that were bragging about how they were going to take care of all these illegal aliens are running for the hills. These The Democrat mayors are trying to find a way out they, they can't put pressure on the Biden administration without showing a divided Democrat party, even though some of them are willing enough, they're, they're actually willing to stand up to Biden and to tell him that his border plan is a disaster, but nothing is being done. And if you think anything is going to get done, unless we have a Republican president and we can take back the Congress, uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, these, the, the Senate is in Democrat hands. You've got a Democrat president. I mean, I, I know I sound like a broken record when I talk about this stuff, but it is limited. Republicans are limited as to what they can get. And Democrats seem to be ready for a government shutdown. They think that that's going to be the path that's going to help them electorally in 2024. And quite frankly, that's what everybody's thinking about. Nobody, no one is thinking about what's happening to the country in, in, in the purest terms. Now, Chip Roy, let, let me say this. I have a lot of respect for Chip Roy. I, I actually I think that he's one of the best members of Congress. He's one of the most conservative, and he's, he's someone who's willing to say the things that need to be said but also take the votes that need to be, need to be taken. And he's aggressive in a conservative way. But he, he isn't so far to the right that he can't consider any kind of compromise. And in the current situation that they're in with the number of Republican Republicans we have in the House, the size of the majority that we have, there's going to have to be some type of compromise. So anyway, over the weekend, about 20 hardliners in the House and Senate 
were ready to shut down the government, so McCarthy had to depend on Democrat support to get the resolution passed. And that's something that McCarthy said he wouldn't do. He pledged that he was not going to work with the Democrats around Republicans, but when it came down to being a few hours away from a government shutdown, he did agree to basically abandon the 30% spending cut. The only thing that is in there is that the money for Ukraine is frozen until November 17th. And that's something that conservative Republicans wanted as well. They wanted to be able to say, look, we've got to reevaluate. There has to be more accountability if we're going to continue to spend money on Ukraine. And they didn't want to include any money on Ukraine um, when uh, in, in the current budget. So as a result of all of this, Matt Gates has promised to keep his word, and he's calling for a vote to vacate the chair, which, if it's successful, would remove McCarthy from his role as speaker, paving the way from some, for someone else to be elected. The problem is they don't have anybody else to be elected. There's no, there's no one else that has said they would step up to the plate. This is why it took 15 votes uh, to get part of the reason to get McCarthy in to start with, because there aren't a lot of people that are willing to step up and take this job. And really, when you think about it, why would you? Why would you do that? Because you know that the minute you cross uh, Gates or, 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 and some of the hardliners, uh, they're going to come after you. I mean, they're going to they're gonna make it difficult for you. Um, Gates, this is McCarthy was on Face the Nation this weekend, and he was asked about the fact, what about all this? Are you going to survive? Let's listen to part of that interview. <laughs> yeah. uh, there is a lot to get to with you. I want to start, though, on the news this morning from Congressman Matt Gates, who says he's going to uh, seek a motion to vacate. He's going to try to oust you as Speaker of the House. Well, that, that's nothing new. He's tried to do that from the moment I ran for office. Look. Well, this time he says he's going to keep going. May not get there before the 15th ballot, but it took 15 for Kevin McCarthy. He uh, says he's coming for you. Can you survive? Yes, I'll survive. You know, this is personal with Matt. Matt voted against the most conservative ability to um, protect our border, secure our border. He's more interested in securing TV interviews than doing something. He wanted to push us into a shutdown, even threatening his own district with all the military people there who would not be paid, only because he wants to take this motion. So, Okay, so that's Speaker McCarthy. He thinks he's going to survive. He thinks he's got the votes. Uh, Matt Gates doesn't know that if, whether or not for sure that he has. Well, let me let me back up and say he's confident that he has enough Republican votes to oust the speaker if uh, depending on what the Democrats do. But this is interesting. I mean, Matt Gates is is says he's not going to make any kind of deal with the Democrats, and yet if if McCarthy is ousted. Then it's going, or it's going to be, because the Democrats are going to oust him. In other words, Gates is going to have to depend on the Democrats in the House to vote McCarthy out of office, along with the handful of Republicans that are following Matt Gates' leadership, in, in order to get him out. So is that not? I mean, I mean, I'm just asking the question. Look, I'm, I'm not condemning. I'm not saying this is bad. This is good. I'm just saying if you're going to go around and say. We've got to get rid of McCarthy because he depends on the Democrats and he's cutting a deal with the Democrats. Look, I, I get it. Gates is not cutting a deal with the Democrats as in going and speaking with them and saying, please help us get rid of the speaker. But he would be dependent. His goal to get rid of, of, of McCarthy is going to be dependent on all of the Democrats 
sticking together to vote him out as speaker. If some of them decide not to vote him out, then you know he's he's going to remain. And of course, Matt Gates was talking about the fact that um, let's see which program was he on over the weekend. Uh, I can't rem- remember, but anyway, one of the things that he was saying is is look if 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 this if uh, if McCarthy is speaker, then it's going to be he's going to be the speaker at the behest of Democrats. Now, there's several things that could happen here. I mean, multiple possibilities that could play out in the House. McCarthy could persuade enough Democrats to support him to retain his role. That's going to weaken him because the, Democrats are not going to vote for him for nothing. I mean, they're, they're, they're just not. Um, and so if Democrats end up voting for him, it's going to mean that McCarthy is going to have to be beholden to some of them for his job, and that could affect future votes and negotiations, particularly on the spending bills that are coming up. It's going to put them, it's going to give them leverage if he has to depend on some of them to keep his job. Gates may be able to convince enough Republicans to vote for another speaker if he can find somebody that's willing to step in who could garner enough Republican support. He found people who were willing to step up against McCarthy, but they didn't have enough. McCarthy had enough support within the Republican caucus to where someone else, and and there were a couple of people who maybe could have gotten the votes, but they refused to run against McCarthy. So when McCarthy was elected, again, it took 15 ballots for him to win the job because no other Republican could win over enough support from the McCarthy supporters to replace him. Now, another possibility is that Democrats could pick up enough Republican support to elect Hakeem Jeffries as Speaker. And although that isn't likely, I I, I mean, I don't think that's what's going to happen, but it's a possibility. Another ingredient in the stew that you might want to take into consideration as you think about this is that the House Ethics Report on an investigation into Matt Gates that included accusations of campaign finance violations, accepting bribes, taking drugs, all this stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's a mess. Gates has vehemently denied all those charges, and the word on the ethics report is that it's finished and it's being written, and if it affirms any of the accusations, there are Republican members of the House who are ready to attempt to remove, just to have Gates removed from Congress, and that would require two-thirds vote. So in the middle of the debate on Saturday, then you had Democrat Congressman Jamal Bowman pull a fire alarm in a building on the congressional campus, which was interesting. Initially, it was thought that he pulled the alarm to delay the vote, but when you step back and think about that, he was voting for the measure. So what was the what was the plan here? What was the motivation? It's unclear what advantage pulling the fire alarm was going to give Democrats since they were getting ready to vote for the measure unless they thought that the, the because the negotiation point where they were, I think the Democrats were on board. Bowman pointed out, he, he pointed like, he said there's this confusing sign and he believed that the only way to get through a locked door so he could get back in time to vote was to pull the fire alarm and that would unlock the door. <laughs> Um, wow, what a, what a reason. Pulling a fire alarm without a fire is a federal offense, and there's an ongoing investigation. Republican House mem- uh, member Nicole Maliotakis has filed a motion to expel Bowman from Congress. So you're going to have that going on this week as well. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff happening, and I'm glad that we're going to hear from Drew McKissick here in just a few minutes because maybe he can help us sort through some of this stuff. And, of course, as all of this is going on, 
Uh, you've got Trump's New York civil fraud trial beginning today, and we're going to talk about this. And I, the word fraud, in my mind, honestly, when it comes to this trial, is the fact that the entire trial against Trump is a fraud. It's not the fact that Trump or the, the business interests have committed any kind of discernible fraud. I, I pointed this out last week. I think it bears pointing out again because it, literally the people who Trump was doing business with have all testified, at least the ones so far, have testified in favor of Donald Trump. All of this allegedly happened years ago, and everybody who was involved in these deals have made money. The Trump organizations made money. The banks made money. The businesses that entered into these contracts and, and arrangements with, with Trump, they all made money. And they're all saying that they didn't think they were being frauded. So how can you have fraud when the people who supposedly have been frauded have all said that there was no fraud involved and we're perfectly happy with the outcome? There's been no harm. There's been no hurt. And yet last week, you had the federal, the uh, the judge in New York in this case, Ingeron, ordered all of the entities controlled by Trump and his children to be placed in receivership. Now, what that means is that Trump maintains ownership of the business and the properties, but all of the business and properties are going to be controlled by a receiver that's appointed by the court. So they they've gone to Trump and they said, "Give us a list of three entities or three people to be the receiver of your properties. And, and this, this thing is going to be a mess this week as well. So we'll talk about that as we get there. All right. Right now, though, it's time to talk to South Carolina Republican Chair Drew McKissick, who is also the co-chair of the National Republican Party. Good morning, sir. How you doing? Man, I'm doing well this morning, sir. How are you? Well, I'm doing fine. I hope you're not in D.C. because, uh, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on up there. I think I think your job actually is you wear both these hats. It might be better to be South Carolina Party Chairman right now than National Co-Chair. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if you can pick, and I, I doubt that you can just decide. You know, now I'm going to wear my South Carolina hat today. But um, well, today I am wearing the South Carolina hat. As a matter oh. of fact, we've got a uh, county elected official in Darlington County. Uh, who is switching parties at noon today. So we're heading oh. that way to uh, welcome him into the party and the growth sure. of the party there uh, in the PD. Excellent. Well, that's, hey, I like starting off with good news. It kind of uh, gets us, <laughs> you know, gets us kind of ready for what else is to come. So I got to get your, I got to get you to weigh in your thoughts about uh, this mess yeah. over the weekend with McCarthy and with Gates and, the possibility of McCarthy being ousted this week, and it would have to take Democrat support to save McCarthy. And if Democrats come over to vote for McCarthy to stay as speaker, then that means they're going to expect something in return. And we're right in the middle of a budget battle that's going to have to get settled by November 17th, or we're going to have a government shutdown. So what do you mm -hmm. think? Oh, well, yeah, that's a tall order. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just want you I to mean, fix. Well, I didn't well, want much. I just want you to fix it this morning on the show. That's all. It's, well, no, I promise you one thing right now before we get off this call, I will not have fixed it. Uh, <laughs> but what I will, but what I will say is, I, I mean, there are um, uh, as far as those who the voices of folks who want to see something, right. and I emphasize at least something here in return for. Um, 
yeah, lack of a better way to put it, playing the usual go along to get along game when it comes to budgeting and so forth in D.C. Uh, you know, I, I think they're right in the sense of, you know, look, you know, we don't have the presidency. We don't have the Senate. So, you know, you've got limited power. You know, you can't you can't get everything you want. That's just the way you know things are going to go. But, uh, you know, should you be able to expect something policy wise that moves the needle more in your direction? Uh, you know, I, I think yes. Uh, and, you know, I don't know all the details that were in there, but I have a whole lot that would, uh, you know, scratch that hits as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you know, we'll see as they go forward. I know uh, folks in the Senate were talking about offering more in terms of uh, uh, border security and funding for that. Uh, well, okay, and we definitely need that, no doubt about it. And we spent a pile of money on uh, just about everything else, but. Um, you know, so definitely have a point as far as uh, removal, though, of uh, McCarthy. Personally, I don't see that happening because, quite frankly, who wants the job? <laughs> that's, that's the first thing. Well, that's you a, have to have somebody who's willing to stand up and say, I'll take the job. Well, yeah, let, let me ask you a dumb question, OK, because that's most of the time uh, that's the only kind of questions I have. But I mean, if, you, if, if <laughs> is it possible to remo remove McCarthy and not put anybody in? I mean, could we just not have a speaker? You can't do that. Right? <laughs> no, I mean, there has to no, be a speaker of the house. Constitutionally. Okay. It was in the Constitution. You have okay. to have a speaker of the house. Yes, that sir. old pesky <laughs> Constitution that just kind of has yeah, to keep us yeah. all in line. All right. So, but, you know, back when they took, it took 15 rounds to get him in office, they tried to run several mm -hmm. different people up against him, and they didn't have mm -hmm. the support. I mean, McCarthy's support within the mainstream body of the Republican Party in Congress seems to be pretty solid. And so it, I, I don't see mm -hmm. them being able to find somebody to take his place. I mean, one of the possibilities is that you, you peel off enough, enough Republicans, you could have Hakeem Jeffries as Speaker of the House. Is that even possible? Well, well I mean, yeah, possible, yes. Uh, likely, I would say not even remotely. Right. Uh, because you, you, you point out the obvious fact here. I mean, this is about math. You have a certain number of votes that you have to have in order to become Speaker of the House. You have to have a simple majority. Uh, and so you know how tight the Republican margin is in the House. I think yes. it's a four or five vote majority. Okay, well, what does that mean? That means, you know, a handful of uh, folks in your caucus can, you know, uh, hang things up. Uh, and in either direction, quite frankly, so not just not just a conservative direction, but a moderate direction. Right. Uh, and that's a tight rope that he's got to walk. But as you point out, though, when it came to the initial battle for Speaker, uh, you know, he had all but, let's say, you know, five to nine votes, depending on which round you were talking about. Uh, so he's got the overwhelming majority of support within the caucus. But, you know, and it's a tricky job. And you, you have to find a way to be able to have as many people as possible feel like their voices are being heard and that they're getting something. Uh, and I don't just mean here in terms of, you know, money, which is usually what it's tied to. I mean in terms of policy, something that scratches their itch, that satisfies their constituents. And that's a tough job, no doubt about it. You know, you're you're very, always have been to me, very astute at analyzing and figuring out public reaction or at least being able to gauge public rea reaction about things that the Republican Party do, does, the things Democrats do. Um, when you look at this situation, is this hurting Republicans? Is this helping them? 
Or are we at a point where no one's paying close enough attention yet for this to matter one way or the other in terms of uh, going forward in 2024? Uh, do I see it hurting us in terms of uh, the ballot? You know, as you think about things right. in just a bottom line political way, no, I don't believe so. Uh, I believe you got, it, we're, we're in a situation where the country is so polarized in one direction or another. Uh, I really don't see, you know, uh, how it would hurt us in, this, in that sense that the ballot so, box. So swing voters are not swing, where things are right now. Sw- swing voters are not going to look at this. Independents are not going to look at this and go, "Well, those Republicans, look at them. They can't even get their act together in the Congress." So the, you, probably mm-hmm. what what I look at it and think is that there's not enough people paying close enough attention to that yet for that to matter. I mean, if we were well, weeks away or something like that, I think it'd be a big right. deal. Yeah, but probably not yeah, we're, yet. We're, yeah, again, yes, over a year away. Uh, and again, the government did not shut down. I mean, they still have another you know hurdle they have to get to, and maybe they figure right. something out between A and B. You know, of course, you and I both know this is the same song that the media wants to play about Republicans all the time. Of you know, whether we have you know all three you know, uh, uh, players at the table, President, House, and Senate, or whether we just have one body, either way, it's going to be Republicans' fault as far as the media is concerned if you know, right. the government shuts down. Yeah. So uh, people have seen this before. Um, do I think it's making a difference? I don't even think really at the margins at this point. And quite frankly, everything that you look at on the other side of the ball here with Joe Biden, the immigration records that we're setting, uh, the economic fallout he's still dealing with, and go down the list, and, and not to mention his you know, increasing frailty. Uh, right. They're the ones who have the problem. They're the ones... That's the reason why Gavin Newsom, governor of California, is trying to pretend to try to act like a moderate right now because he's seeing maybe an opportunity. Well, yeah, but last night he blew that opportunity when he appointed (laughs) the head of Emily's List, who is an Uh African-American lesbian, to take Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. Uh, there's not, and, uh, and, and, and in fact, people have got to figure out where she lives. According to Emily's list and they're scrubbing <laughs> the website, she lives with her partner in Maryland. Now explain to me, I mean, I think there's some splaining to do here. You got to explain to me how a person living in Maryland can represent the people of California and the United States Senate, but they're going to figure that out. <laughs> I don't think they'll, they will definitely try to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. All right, well let's talk. Uh, let's talk about presidential politics because it's much more stable. Uh-huh. I mean, it's much. <laughs> there's a lot less controversy going on. Look, President Trump's call for the RNC just to ditch the rest of the debates because he's the nominee and this thing is over. Uh, look, I, I, there's no way that's going to happen, is it? I mean, the RNC is not going to. No. They're going to go forward with the debates, right? Well, look, I mean, we we have to manage a nomination process because right. remember what we need once we get to convention and we actually have a nominee, what we have to have is a united party. If, you know, a third of the party or 40 percent of the party or whatever percentage it would be felt like that there wasn't an actual nomination process, uh, they're right. going to feel shorted. Right. And these are people that we not only need voting for, but people we need working with us and working for the nominee. So. You know, you have to think about the end game here. Well, is there a path in your view? I mean, is there a path at this point? And I know this may sound like a stupid question because we we haven't had a primary yet. We haven't had a caucus. We're still several months away. Um, And yet, you know, President Trump is, I mean, former president, he's he's ducking the debates or or not participating. And Mm -hmm. quite frankly, Mm -hmm. if you look at the polling numbers, that's not hurting him at this point. 
And so my question is, and I'm watching the debates, but in the back of my mind, every time I watch these guys, I'm thinking any one of those people on the stage are competent and could be president of the United States. And yet I don't don't know that there's a path for any. Do you think there's still a path for somebody to break out of this mess? You know, presidential campaigns typically are driven by events. That's usually just the way things go. I mean, the candidates get together, they have their strategy, right. and you know, the way they, the way things, they think things are going to go, and then events intervene. Uh, you know, at this point, as you point out, uh, he's got a, a huge lead in the polls, especially now in the key states. I saw polls in Iowa and New Hampshire yesterday, uh, approaching right at fifty yeah. percent. I believe is where he was. Uh, you know, so would I rather have those numbers and than some of the other numbers? Absolutely, if I were the candidate. Uh, you know, so that, that looks like maybe where it's headed. You know, uh, again, we want to have a fair and open process for everybody, so I don't want to prejudge anything. You know, especially in this position. Uh, but you know, I'll just you know reiterate: at the end of the day, uh, we're going to need the support of everybody. Right. Uh, and you've got a number of candidates. So I think that the, one of the good things that this does is it does show to the American people that we have a wealth of riches in terms yes. of candidates who could step up to a job versus what they have on the Democrat side of the aisle and Joe Biden or whoever. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, and I'll also say, though, in terms of the debate process itself, and this is something that, you know, because I was there in California and personally, I was disappointed in terms of the questions that were asked and the way that the moderators did or rather did not do their job, in my opinion. And I think that's something in the process going forward that we need to address. Uh, we're looking forward to, I think, uh, probably having Salem Media participate in the next debate. Uh, that's something I've been advocating for, having established conservative media outlets yeah. and organizations actually have a seat at the table where they are asking questions, not just members of the, quote, mainstream media. Right. Now, I agree. I think that's very important, and I, I hope that comes to pass. One last question, because I want to be respectful of your time. One of the things that's really upset me about uh, this vendetta of, it seems like, the half of the civilized world against President Trump is this mess that's going to go on in New York today, this fraud trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, of all of the things that President Trump is dealing with, this has the capacity to devastate him. I mean, you've already got a judge who has said that all of his New York property is going to be in receivership, and he's got to pick three people, and that means he can retain the profits, but but whoever is uh, is managing the property can sell off the property. And, uh, you know, there's a $250 million fine on the table. I mean, I just, how in the world is is he going to be able to navigate all this? He has come through so much. But this just seems to be, to me, to be the most egregious example of of prosecutorial misconduct. Now, I know this is a civil case, but everybody inflates their property values. If you were going to charge everybody in New York State for inflating their property values, you'd have to drag every business person (laughs) in the state before a court. This is so ludicrous. And by, by the way, guess who likes having inflated property values? The government, yeah. because yeah. they tax you on the basis of inflated property banks. So right. Do they want right. to give back some of that tax revenue? You know, look, I mean, the, the fact that you point out it is just total, total, not just prosecutorial, but judicial misconduct throughout oh, this goodness. whole thing. Which state, which case you're talking about? It's a weaponization of judiciary. Is what it, it is. is. Uh, I- and, you know, 
I think, look, at the end of the day, I think all this stuff is going to be heading to the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that, that's so. what I think. And who yep. knows how long that'll take. Well, but, and I hope they're, I think the court and its current makeup will be expeditious in trying to settle this because I think they can see that this is just too much confusion surrounding an American election for something as important as the president's. I mean, we've got to have it, you know, fixed. Drew McKissick, South Carolina chairman, also uh, national co-chair of the Republican Party. And just, I I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you taking the time today. God bless you. (laughs) And uh, have a good one. Appreciate you. You too. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. All right. Um, Again, when I start talking about this civil case, I don't know why of all the cases, the criminal cases, I mean, I get it. The, the New York criminal case against Trump when it comes to payments to Stormy Daniels, completely bogus, completely. Even some people on the left question whether that should ever have been brought forth because of, of how terrible it is uh, in terms of bending the law to try to, go, to get Trump. I mean, these charges down in Georgia, I think it's clear that President Trump was not trying to interfere, at least to me, in what happened in Georgia. He was asking questions. He was trying to find out what's possible. He believed that there was election chicanery in Georgia and that if that could be determined before the um, the electoral votes were certified, that there, there could be, there should have been an investigation of that. And they're prosecuting him over that. Uh, of course, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's basically what it boils down to. Uh, the charges when it comes to the documents, look, uh, the investigation into President Biden is beginning to produce some fruit. We're starting to hear that there could be uh, some serious allegations about classified docu- documents and how they were handled by Biden. You've got uh, Hillary Clinton with a server in her house. She's got uh, tons of classified documents that were actually exposed to um, who knows who, how do, how do we know these servers were secure? I mean, some of them were found on an assistant's laptop for Pete's sake. So what, you, you know, when, when people, the reason people, I think, support President Trump, even in the middle of all these criminal charges, is because they look at how the law is applied. And they see that the law is being applied differently for him, and that's where this weaponization of the Justice Department comes from. And the fact that we've got evidence now that when Hunter Biden was being investigated, that prosecutors basically put the president off limits. They put him sort of in a, you know, in a, uh, a force field chamber. They put a force field around him saying, look, you can, if the evidence leads back to him, you can't do anything about it. And then they expect the American people to just simply accept that and to believe that all these bad things, I, I think w- about President Trump, I think the one thing that could cause him actual legal trouble is, again, it's going to be like Watergate. It's the cover-up of the fact that he had the documents. If he had simply turned those documents back, taken them from Mar-a-Lago and given them to the National Archives, but he believed those were his documents and he was going to keep them. And so he, you know, and the evidence is going to have to be presented that he obstructed justice. But I think there's more evidence in that trial that could cause Trump trouble than there is in these other trials. But but I got to tell you, this thing in New York, uh, I, for some reason, I've, I've thought a lot about this. And I'm just thinking to myself how a state government with this much power and a judge with this much power that he could actually just put 
Trump Tower, two golf co uh, courses, one in Westchester, um, and other high-value properties in New York that he can just, by judicial edict, tell the Trump organization that he's, he's taken their property. I mean, this is, this is imperial stuff here that the American people, I think, are really uncomfortable with because if, if they can do this to, to President Trump, they can do it to just about anybody. And I look, I've, I've talked a lot about what I want my role to be going into 2024 as a Christian is to turn the temperature down, and, and, and maybe I'm not doing that today. But I also have a role to present the truth in politics and culture. And the truth is that there are a lot of businesses in New York City that use the same businesses, business practices that President Trump, former President Trump has used, and they're not being hauled up. And that's what bothers me, is equal justice under the law. We've got to believe in a justice system that doesn't put its thumb on the scale because of somebody that they, they disagree with politically. Um, and there could be the Attorney General's office, Letitia James, ran. She ran for office promising that she was going to bring down President Trump. And she's asked for Trump to pay a $250 million fine and to be banned from doing business in New York. And then you get, you've got this Judge Engeron who goes along with at least part of that because essentially by putting his companies in receivership, he's not going to be able to do any business. He can't make the decisions about those companies. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know how this is going to turn out this week, but I think it's going to be it, it, because it's in New York and because these are people that have had a bullseye drawn on President Trump for a long time. I don't see how he gets a fair civil trial this week. Now, he said that he may be there in the courtroom. And of course, he is. If he is, it's, it's going to be a circus. Um, now, Trump could keep this case tied up in appeals for years, but look at what that's going to do. That's going to further drain his financial resources at a time when he's fending off these four separate sets of criminal charges, and he's trying to find a campaign for president. Uh, there's no precedent for this case. Letitia James tried this tactic against the NRA, but it didn't get this far. It failed. And so there hasn't been a case get this far with the possibility, of, other than a, a legitimate RICO case that involved the mafia, of, of legitimately the government stepping in and taking someone's ability away to do business. Um, Trump spoke out last week. He attacked the judge. He attacked the attorney general. And, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the way that Trump attacks people in uh, the media. I, I, I know it, it causes the base to get riled up, but I don't think it does anything to draw independence and other people that he's going to have to have to step up to win the election for president if he becomes the nominee. Uh, but you can understand his frustration when this is the kind of action that's being taken against him. At least we can understand. Here's uh, what Trump sounded like last week. Will Trump actually attend this trial in person? Trump indicated he may. Well, sorry about that. This is coming from Morning Wire, um, and I'm, I'm using that as a clip. Let me just tell you what, what was done here. Uh, the president basically accused the attorney general and the judge of being corrupt, and he talked about the fact that the the guy, these that they're being weaponized against him. 
Um, and so this is, and this is heading into the trial. Now, normally, look, I'm sure Trump's attorneys are not really big on the fact that President Trump is attacking those that are going to make the decisions about him this week. I mean, that's normally not the kind of thing you want going into the courtroom. But, but here's the thing as well. Um, I'm sure Trump thinks, what difference does it make? I mean, whether I attack them or not, they're coming after me. Whether I attack them or not, uh, it's not going to make any difference in terms of the decision because they've already made the decision, especially when it comes to to the judge in the case. I mean, he's already ruled that Trump's properties have to go into receivership. So I guess, you know, he just figures I'm going to try to get my my licks in on this um, in, in terms of sounding off about what's being done to him and his organization. Uh, we're, we're in a difficult time, folks. I mean, we really are. I, it, it concerns me, again, the temperature that we've reached in this country when it comes to political debate and what people are saying about it. Um, if you get a chance this week, uh, look up the Baptist Courier. Uh, you can go to Baptist Courier online. Uh, South Carolina Baptist Courier. I have a monthly column in there, and this week I wrote about whether Christians, I asked the question, are Christians going to engage? I'm not talking about stepping out of the political process at all. In fact, I'm talking about leaning into the political process, but being part of an effort to try to turn the temperature down, to try to to sort of be peacemakers. Uh, And I know a lot of people think that's weak, uh, but if you think that's weak, then you think Jesus was weak. Jesus was not weak. He was meek. Meekness is power under control. And when it comes to Christ, when it comes to Jesus Christ, as Jesus walked the earth, that was ultimate power under control of Jesus himself, his own humility, understanding his mission and being willing to submit to the Father's will. And as Christians, when we step out into the marketplace, we need to be meek, which is We're engaged. We're not pushovers. We're not allowing um, people just to manipulate us. But at the same time, we're doing what we can under the direction of the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to try to bring some modicum of peace to the situation, even as we understand the situation. we got to know the truth, and then we've got to respond in love. And that, that doesn't mean laying down in front of the opposition. It means speaking the truth vigorously, but also in love. All right, let me let me talk about this uh, longitudinal study. I promised I was going to talk about uh, this today, and there's a couple other things we're probably not going to get to that we'll get to tomorrow, and we may talk about this a little bit more tomorrow. But I was I was so glad to see the story at National Review by Bradford Wilcox and David Bass. Growing up in intact families matters more than ever is the name of the story. If you want to go to National Review, you can read the whole thing. But the subtitle, while marriage has lost ground in the popular imagination, its value to kids has demonstrably increased. Stable two-parent families have always, always, and that's an important word here, forever mattered to kids. But today, we have new evidence that they may matter more than ever. A new study from the Institute for Family Studies indicates that an intact family is increasingly tied to the educational, financial, and social welfare of children. Now, this is true because it's biblical. 
You know, God set the family. God set the family. He set the state. He set the church. Those are the three institutions that God has designed and put in place in this world to hold the world together while we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it turns up that growing up with two parents made a bigger difference for millennials than for boomers. So even though even though baby boomers were positively affected by having two parents, a mom and a dad, and when I'm saying two parents, I'm not talking about two mamas or two daddies. I'm talking about a mother and a father in the home, passing along values and providing a stable environment, a loving environment for children to grow up in. The new report co-authored by uh, Wilcox comes on the heels of an important new uh, book by the Brookings Institution, economist Melissa Kearney, The Two-Parent Privilege, showing that American kids do better when raised in a two-parent family. Kearney's exhaustive social science research has kneecapped left-wing arguments that marriage and family stability don't matter for children. Now, this this is uh, a column today at National Review is by Bradford Wilcox and David Bass. So just full disclosure, the report that we're talking about, Bradford Wilcox is one of the authors, and he's the author of this piece. Quote, according to this topic, uh, avoiding, excuse me, this topic is counterproductive, Kearney told the conservable economist, denying the importance of family structure and the role of families and children's outcomes and economic mobility is just dishonest based on the preponderance of evidence. Now, this is this is true for every study. It doesn't matter which study. If you do a legitimate, peer-reviewed, scientific study over any length of time, what you discover is that moms and dads matter in a home when it comes to the success of their children, providing that initial stability, that atmosphere where they they feel loved, they have opportunities presented to them. But even though we know that's true from all the evidence, the share of Americans who think marriage and a stable family are important for children is it, it, it are not important, rather, for children, is growing. In other words, the American people think the opposite is true. What, whatever happened to follow the science? The science here is clear, and yet a lot of American people are looking, they're ignoring the science, they're ignoring the research, And Gallup found that from 2006 to 2020, so that's a period of 14 years, the share of adults who reported that it is important for unmarried couples who have had a child together to legally marry dropped from 76% to 60%, 16% drop in 14 years, a trend that is concentrated among college-educated liberals. Let Let me just say, people going to liberal universities and colleges. That's where this stuff is taught. That's where the prejudice against the family is ingrained. And again, I, I'm, I'm an unashamedly, I'm, I'm part of North Greenville University where Christ makes the difference and where we're equipping transformational leaders for the church and society because we're unapologetically, biblically-based, biblically-faithful, mission-oriented in this world, turning out people who have the ability to transform the culture rather than turning out people who are trained in destroying the culture, which is what happens in so many secular-based universities and environments. So, and, and this is why people believe that it's time to throw in the towel on marriage when, in fact, it's the time that ramping up support for marriage and the family is what we need to do to try to fix our cultural problems. 
In her, in her book, Kearney reports that it's been especially tough to raise the family structure issue in the elite circles she travels in, which is not surprising given that only 30% of college-educated liberals agree that children are better off with married par parents, according to one recent survey. All right, we're running out of time, um, but I want to talk about this a little bit more. I want to get further into this study because this is, this is a huge study, and it, if, if we could just get the attention of the American people to begin to pay attention to the importance of parents and the contribution that they make to their children and the stability of the family, we could go a long way toward beginning to solve some of our most serious problems in this culture. Well, listen, I hope you have a great day. Hope you enjoyed the, li enjoyed the live portion today. And if you're listening to the podcast, thank you for that. I really appreciate you signing up. Uh, getting it to uh, come to your smart device and set it up. It'll be notif it'll notify you as soon as the podcast is available. And if you would, if you enjoy it, please do me a favor. Leave me a good review because that really does help build the program. I'm still working on building the program. It's growing. Uh, I'm excited about some of the growth I'm seeing, especially with the podcast, uh, as well as online. And I'm, I'm looking for other online opportunities uh, as they become available so I'd appreciate your prayers for the program as well. And if you enjoy it, again, thanks for joining me today. I'll be back in the morning live, 730. And of course, we'll have a podcast up in just about 40 minutes. God bless you.